Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today, we're going to be talking to Stephen Donzinger, who had a case that was potentially going to be in front of the Supreme Court. Did they accept it? Did they reject it? Um, everything that all the drama that surrounds that, the debate that was going on internally. It's a really, really interesting case in a world that made sense. Of course, this would be a case that the Supreme Court takes up. Yeah. Um, we'll talk to him about it. Fortunately, our world does not make sense. Unfortunately, our world does not make sense. But it's, it's very important. You know, I was reading about it earlier in the week, and then now we have him on to give his take on it. So very happy that we get to go down that road with him. But before we do, there's a, a few things we wanted to discuss here. So um, little clip I'm about to show you, Crystal, has gone viral, okay. the kids say. The okay. kids say this has been very viral. And uh, it's one it's one of the intellectual giants of the right, <laughs> I like to call her. Her name is Lauren Boebert. Mm -hmm. And um, she, when she's not running a restaurant that gives people violent diarrhea, you know that story, right? I think the restaurant closed, though, now. Probably because it was giving people violent diarrhea, I would guess. That would be a good reason <laughs> for it to close. Well, anyway, when she's not uh, running that restaurant, which now apparently is closed, um, she's trying to play a nice little political gotcha moment going after some D.C. officials here. So uh, check it out. Is Lauren Boebert going after a, a D.C. official, and she face plants. Mr. Allen... Based on these statistics, I, I, I would like to talk to you um, about some, some other things um, that are going on here in Washington, D.C., specifically an initiative that you led. In November of 2022, you led the charge to reform D.C.'s crime laws. Is that correct? I chaired the committee that that proposal came to. You led us. this charge, yes, sir. And uh, these charges, these changes are now law here in D.C., correct? Do you mean the revised criminal code? Yes, uh, no, those are not the law. Those are not the law. Did with you, the, you the revised revised you, you criminal code them. was uh, rejected by? Excuse me, Mr. Chairman. I'll talk to Mr. Allen. Yes, Mr. Allen, did you or did you not decriminalize public urination in no, Washington D.C.? Did you lead the charge to do so? No, it, the revised criminal code left that as a criminal charge. Did you lead the charge to decriminalize public urination in Washington D.C.? No, ma'am. That. Did you ever vote in favor of decriminalizing public urination in Washington, D.C.? The revised criminal code that was did passed you by the ever council support, kept it as a criminal offense. Did you, did, and you support this criminal? I voted for it, yeah. You voted to keep it as a criminal offense. That's correct. The full council did. We have records that show that you were in favor of removing that criminal offense and allowing public urination. No, the... Is that something that you intend to pursue in the future? No. The legislation that you're referring to that came from the Criminal Code Reform Commission changed public urination from a criminal to a civil offense. The council then changed that to maintain it as a criminal offense at the request of the mayor. Thank you. I yelled. Oh. <laughs> Look, it's a cautionary tale. That's why you should never do gotcha politics. Because I'm sure she read that on some shitty far-right blog where they were or purporting or he did reported yeah. it as a matter of fact like this guy wanted to make it legal for you to piss in the street <laughs> and so she was just like i got him i'm gonna nail him on this one uh, and that's what happens bro that's what I, when you have like a caricatured straw man version of the opposition and then you try to like nail him on that yeah it's like well, well what happens was, when you're just wrong? What happens she was then? aiming for a viral moment. Yes. And she got one. She got one. That <laughs> is true. She got one. The, I, I love how I, at every point he was like, no. no. no <laughs> did you? That's no. Right. No, I, did, no, I didn't. No. Do you want to do that? If you, no. no. <laughs> um, I, my personal favorite is how confident she is yes. going in. She, you can see she's like sort of like boosting herself like, oh, I got him. On the yeah, floor. exactly. Like, Here we go. Here we go. It's game time and just complete face plan. Um astonishing and astounding and amazing to watch well that's why they always say like whoever doesn't want to be a leader usually should be the leader and the people who can't wait to jump in front of the parade and get their Beyond, face out there yeah. it's like yeah because then you get people like that they're cocky well here's, overconfident arrogant do you do you think that urinating in public should be a criminal offense um or civil he was saying it, they yeah, well i, guess I mean there was look it depends what the punishment is like i'm sure offense. i'm sure even if it is a criminal offense right that the punishment is just like a fine right you could have a criminal offense where it's a fine no yeah so that's probably what it is right i guess i mean so. we have to look it up to get the exact facts on this but i don't think you're spending time in jail if you get caught peeing in public you'll just get like a ticket or something right i would think so yeah so that's fa fair to me okay that's fair to me. I mean, I understand. Did you support it? 
<laughs> Would you support it? Did you lead the charge? Have I, you I, ever talked about it? She just kept like, let me ask it a different way and see if I yeah. can get what I'm looking for here. I understand the point of like, if you lessen the charge, you will probably incentivize just more pissing in public, right? Like, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be at epidemic levels where, you know, you're walking down the street and suddenly Grandma Barbara is over there like <laughs> squatting. Like, that's not going to happen, right? But I do understand you don't want to like incentivize it. You know what I mean? But you also don't want to go, too harsh or what are you gonna give somebody a year in prison because they pissed right. in public well, so it was mean, an emergency like, i pissed on the side of the road driving on i-95 when i can't get clearly aimed at homeless population exactly yeah right exactly that's what it is it seemed to, and it's like you know you guys can just authorize funding to go to better facilities and put a roof over everybody's head and by the way there's been a number of studies that show that if you give homeless people a roof over their head it saves money in the long run. Yeah. Because you don't have all these issues where it's in and out of jail, in and out of prison, in and out of the hospital, in and out of here and there, and run-ins with the cops and all this stuff. You know, um, apart from being a moral and ethical disaster, it also is uh, financially, the numbers keep ticking up and up and up. So you can address it and save money. This is something we've known for a very long time, but there's no will to do it because there is no homeless lobby where like, you know, homeless people have big moneyed interests who get to go to Washington and say like, we're going to pay you politicians to help the homeless. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I am going to attempt to analyze this on a deeper level, which is a struggle to do, I think there's uh, something to be said here about how the rights approach to what is truly an epidemic of unhoused people in like every major city in the country, which is like morally unconscionable, in my opinion, especially in a wealthy nation, rather than wanting to actually deal with that issue, they just criminalize. Yeah, they want to criminalize it. And they also want to paint it as like, oh, you liberals just want to like make everybody pee in the street or whatever. Moral failing on individuals parts. Exactly. Opposed to a systemic and and paint every city like it's just, you know, some hellscape falling apart you know, homeless people peeing on every corner or whatever. So I think it speaks to that instinct among the right. Yeah, that's right. Well, your got you moment failed. So. Yes, indeed. Giant face plan. Um, there was another piece of news that I wanted to get your reaction to, Kyle. So um, yesterday, well, this is Thursday, so I'm talking about Wednesday. This will come out a couple of days later. Anyway, on Wednesday, the Senate voted to repeal the Iraq War authorizations 20 years after the U.S. invasion. This was both the uh, 2002 authorization for the use of force, as well as the 1991 authorization. So the Gulf War for and the, the Iraq first War. Gulf War. And you said this is just through the Senate or through the Senate and the House? Um, this looks like it's just for the, the, the Senate, Senate just so, voted okay. Yeah. Uh, So proponents, they say this is a CBS News article. Proponents said doing so is necessary to prevent future presidents from abusing their power while not hamstringing current counterterrorism efforts. Mm. And so this is what's important to understand is that the uh, Iraq War authorization just really pertained to Iraq. And the broader, you know, war on, anti- terror. War on terror authorization is what has been used to justify everything else. And that right? was 01. Yeah. I so believe- this is 2003 and 1991. That's the ones they're repealing. There was a 2001 authorization for use of military force, not just for that's- Afghanistan, but for terrorists in right. general. And that expands. Yes. And that's well how we're, that's why we're in Syria. That's why we're doing whatever we're doing in Africa. That's Libya. Like everything that we've Everything else we've done has been under that other um, authorization for the use of military force. So basically, we're at a point where people are like, yeah, we can afford to let this one go. And it doesn't really hamstring our ability to do whatever the hell we want around the world anyway. And by the way, they don't actually color within the lines where they say, look, it was Al Qaeda or jihadists who attacked us on 9-11. Therefore, we only have authorization to go after Al Qaeda or jihadists. They actually use this in many instances to go after people who are explicitly fighting jihadists and al-Qaeda. This was the this was what they used when uh, Donald Trump decided I'm going to I'm going to kill uh, General Soleimani, the you know, top Iranian commander. He was on the ground fighting ISIS at the time. But they said, I don't know, close enough. Terror, terrorism, we don't care if you're Sunni, if you're a jihadist, if you're part of a Shia Iranian militia, close enough. We're just going to use it to attack you. It's so basically been a blank check. It's a blank check and it's it's green light to attack anybody anywhere we want for any reason whatsoever. Right. Exactly right. It's also there's some details here that are kind of interesting and telling. The Senate rejected a few amendments before voting for final passage. So Senator Rand Paul 
actually had an amendment to repeal that 2001 authorization mm. for the use of military force Based. that targeted those responsible for the September 11th attacks, which, as Kyle just explained, has been used to do whatever we want, wherever we want, which still, they say, forms the legal basis for many U.S. counterterror efforts. That was, of course, voted down because it would have actually done something. We don't have the numbers, by the way, but I bet it was like only a handful of people who voted the right way. On yeah, it. I would like to right? know. It would be that, like Rand Paul, Bernie Sanders maybe one or two other Democrats, maybe one other Republican, like a Mike Lee or something. Maybe. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, we also had an amendment from Senator Lindsey Graham to oh boy. What's <laughs> right, going on here? To make things considerably worse. He wanted to have a new authorization of force against Iranian backed militias operating in Iraq. Um, they said the ability to target those proxies in Iraq was a driving issue for Republicans who opposed repealing the authorizations, concerns that were underscored by attacks on U.S. bases in Syria. So he. So in other like, words, here, let me sum up yeah, what he's saying. Ahead. In other words, he's saying, yeah, we're done going after al-Qaeda and jihadists. Let's go after the Iranian Shia militias now. And by the way, just so you understand, they, they, they don't do terror attacks against us. The Iranian Shia militias don't do terror attacks against the United States. That's not a thing. There aren't Shia jihadists are not a thing. The jihadists are all the Sunni fundamentalists, the Wahhabists, the Salafists. So for him, to, that's such like that, that's such an admission. Just saying that, like, let's focus our our effort on people who are even less of a threat to us here at home. Yes, um, there was also an amendment from Marco Rubio that would have halted the 2002 repeal until the Biden administration certified that Iran has stopped supporting terrorist organizations and violent groups in Iraq and Syria. So same type of thing. So basically, I mean, look, I'm glad they're repealed. That's you know, um, I guess some sort of minor potential symbolic step forward, but the. AUMF that's actually used to justify everything under the sun since the Bush administration is still firmly in place. The fact of the matter is this changes absolutely nothing because yeah. we're, we still have troops in Iraq and they're keeping them there under the guise of the 2001 authorization for use of military force, which was originally for Afghanistan. Um, we, I mean, we have 900 troops in Syria, which no one ever voted for. That's right. And, yep. you know, just had a, a con and hundreds more contractors there who are on the ground. And, and Trump admitted it's for the oil. We're going to take their oil. Right. And one of those contractors was just killed. And so Biden launched um, strikes in Syria again yeah. under this AUMF. So they truly use it as blank check to do whatever they want, wherever they want. And then you wonder why the world order is like shifting right in front of us, where you have all these countries now forming an economic alliance with China you have Iran, China, Russia, now Brazil. There's talk about Brazil is going to do some sort of free trade agreements with China. Everybody's joining the BRICS payment system, like, and they're trying to get off the U.S. dollar. And you wonder why. This is one of the main reasons why, right, is that we've always viewed ourselves ever since we've become the world's sole superpower. We're above the law. Right. International law doesn't apply to us. We're we don't care us. about the International Criminal Court. Well, right. And so if you don't abide by your own rules, but you enforce them rigidly for everybody else, at some point, people are going to say, piss off. Yeah, this and this gets thrown back in our face by, you know, Russia, which like, two of course, don't make a right. But they're, you know, they throw the Iraq war invasion in our face every month. Yeah. All of our like lawless international behavior, we're like, oh, you're the ones who are going to come and moralize here about like democracy and the rule of law. Come on, get out. Right. Of here. And like you said, they use that to sort of excuse their crimes. But of the course. actual correct position is we shouldn't have done the crimes and you shouldn't and do the crimes now. Should not do the right, crimes. exactly. Yeah. So, anyway, speaking of crimes, uh, lawlessness. Yes. Speaking of crimes, speaking of war, all that stuff. So, there's a report in Rolling Stone. This is really something. So, recently, Crystal, I don't know if you've been uh, noticing this, but there's been a number of instances where Republican politicians, high-ranking officials, have come out and they've said in no uncertain terms that uh, we should wage war against Mexico. I, I know that sounds insane, but it's. I've covered a number of the instances. So yeah. Lindsey Graham has said it a number of times. I covered it when he said it. Um, I Patch McGee, or, or as his actual name is, Dan Crenshaw, he said it a number of times too. Um, cover that. I think Ramaswamy. Vivek Ramaswamy hinted at it as well. I think you had either Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert, maybe both of them at one point or another, said it. And out of nowhere, I'm looking at this like, Jesus, like why? Where does this come from? And in the case of Vivek, he made the argument to say like, we shouldn't be helping Ukraine against Russia. Like, why are we looking at, you know, after their borders over there, we need to look after our own border here and we need to do war against Mexico in order to defeat the drug cartels because the fentanyl is killing our people. By the way, there was just a report. This is totally a uh, total side point here, but mm -hmm. there was some police officer who was just caught uh, doing fentanyl trafficking. 
So, so are we going to wage war against the police officers or what? Anyway, so uh, Trump apparently comes out. This is according to Rolling Stone. He asks his advisors for, quote, battle plans to attack Mexico if reelected. And they go on to explain in detail, you know, exactly why and what's going on here and how it has to do with the drug cartels and how it has to do with the fentanyl trafficking. And of course, AMLO, the the, uh, president in Mexico, has said a number of times since all this chatter, like, are you guys insane? Like, no, I don't approve this. No, we're not like a colony of yours. We're a sovereign nation. Um, basically like piss off. And he, he made it sound like I will do a crusade against the Republican party because it's all coming from Republicans. He's like, I'll do a crusade against you guys. If you guys keep this going, I'll make sure nobody of any sort of Mexican or Hispanic origin ever votes for a Republican ever again. Like we're, you're really talking about invading your neighbor. And it like, we have so many like trade deals with them. Like we have a, so much cooperation between like Mexico and Canada are arguably our closest allies, right? I mean, they're on our border. Yeah. And talking about, and by the way, hilarious that anybody ever thought for a split second that Donald Trump was anti-war, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, it, Well, I do think that that's, okay. So first of all, obviously it's insane, outrageous, like just openly floating in illegal war against our neighbor, total insanity. Um, apparently also there was some reporting that he asked for, you know, ideas and plans during his last administration that some of his military advisors were like, yeah, are you crazy? Let's, yeah, let's no, not do don't that. do that. So that's number one. Number two, to your point, I think it shows the limits of any sort of like horseshoe anti-interventionist policy between the left and the right, because they may be Ukraine skeptics, but it's not because they have like a principled anti-interventionist or like pro-peace stance. It's like, no, no, this is the wrong war. We actually want to have a war with China and Mexico. Exactly. That's where our hearts exactly. really are. Like, no, no, we're wasting our we're wasting our money and our weapons in Ukraine when we really need to use them to fight drug cartels in Mexico and you know and China because the they're on, on the rise party. to be the next superpower. Right. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's like those are just as devastating, if not more devastating. Worse, yeah. Worse. China. I mean, you're talking our neighbor and China, which is like a real, you know, rising superpower. Horrible, horrible, horrible. So it just shows you, listen, last time around in 2016, it was like build the wall. He clearly made that a centerpiece. It was a real touchstone that sort of lost its juice because number one, he didn't actually really build the wall. Number two, I think everybody sees that that was like a silly solution um, to start with. And it goes again to the fact that um, Republicans love to pretend like these problems are these sort of like individual good versus evil. If we just like go after with all our American firepower, the bad guy, then it's going to solve the problem. There is no solving the drug epidemic in America without decriminalizing and without ending the war on drugs, because that is really what gives these cartels their power. We've been doing interdiction in this country and trying to stop the supply for how many, like a hundred years, and it does not work. So coming in with your G.I. Joe and like blowing up a cartel is not going to solve the problem either. Yeah, like that's not going to get applause lines at a Donald Trump rally if he goes on some wonky, you know, side tangent talking about. And let me tell you, folks, why safe injection sites are actually very good for society. (laughs) Let me tell you, folks, rehab is a wonderful thing. We love our people going to rehab, don't we, folks? Like this is not something doesn't get the applause line. It's not the yeah, I'm a tough guy, Republican type thing. Mm -hmm. And so what you're left with is this like, maybe we should invade our neighbor. Maybe we should invade our neighbor. It's terrifying, man, because I mean, Jesus, you get the sense like. It is. War truly is deeply bipartisan. It's just different targets. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's just different targets. Who is the bad guy country? Who do we want to spend? You know, who who do we want to prop up the military industrial complex and fuel send them trillions more dollars to go and fight? I mean, in some ways, credit to Biden, right? Because he massively, massively reduced the drone war. He pulled the troops on the ground out of Afghanistan. But we're still in Iraq. And he ripped up the, you know, the Iranian nuclear agreement when he said he was going to jump right back in it. So even with a president who's nominally more interventionist than the others, it's like you're still messing up very, very basic things. And blocked any ability to get to a peace deal in Ukraine, even as difficult as that, you know, may be at this moment. But, you know, when China even floated the idea of a ceasefire, suddenly, suddenly our idea of like, oh, whatever Ukraine wants to do was out the window. and was like, no, we won't have that. Right. Exactly. So it's just, you know, you're getting 
different factions of a, a pro-war approach and uh you just have some instances where it seems more insane than other instances. It's so funny because he spends a lot of the time on the campaign trail. I would end the Ukraine-Russia conflict in one day. 24 hours, I'd end it. No World War Three. No World War Three. Anyway, we should invade Mexico. Let's have World War Three. Like, what are you? Yeah, somewhere yeah. else on the planet. Yeah, China. Got to go after China. Got to go after Mexico. But no World War Three. It's like, Jesus, man. This It really makes me feel like we live in some fiction-based thing you know what i mean like it, it feels increasingly surreal yeah it, it also really makes does. me want to move elsewhere <laughs> you know there is that as so, well anyway anyway let's get to our guest Stephen donziger always great to talk to him i want to talk to him about um his case of what happened with the supreme court but also the utter betrayal especially in recent weeks and months of uh joe biden on any sort of climate promises that he made during the campaign so let's get to it Stephen. it's so great to see you yeah it's, it's good to be back thanks for having me so for those of us who aren't lawyers, can you just explain what happened with the Supreme Court here this week? Yeah. So, you know, big picture for those who don't know the case, you know, I spent a bunch of years with a team of lawyers. We won a big pollution judgment against Chevron and the courts of Ecuador. It was affirmed by Ecuador's highest court in the jurisdiction where Chevron wanted the case. Rather than pay the judgment, Chevron then came back to the United States to target me in this weird sort of very aggressive retaliation campaign. And they got a federal judge to to charge me with criminal contempt of court when I appealed one of his orders that I turn over my computer and confidential case file to Chevron, which was unprecedented. So when, after I appealed the order, he charged me with criminal contempt. Um, he took the charges to the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York in Manhattan. Uh, that office refused to prosecute me. They, they considered the charges and rejected them. Um, and then he appointed a private lawyer. The judge did. He didn't stop the case after they refused to prosecute. He, he actually appointed his own prosecutor, a friend of his, who worked for a Chevron law firm to prosecute me for this misdemeanor contempt charge. And this was the first time in U.S. history and the only time I'm aware of in the entire world that a person has been targeted with a private corporate prosecution. And the issue before the Supreme Court was whether or not this was legal, whether it was constitutional. Um, of course, we argued it wasn't. It's, it, and I don't think it is. And, you know, some of the justices, I think, agreed with me. But in the end of the day, the court decided, declined to take my appeal. Um, and it's a, to me, it's a disaster for the rule of law in the United States, because by not taking my appeal, by letting the lower court decision stand, they essentially are sanctioning the legality of the, of a corporation in this case, Chevron or any oil company or railway company like Norfolk Southern, if things get too hot in Ohio, they can actually create a situation where a judge gives them the right to prosecute an activist in the name of the U.S. government and detain them um, in the name of the U.S. government. That is a corporation stepping into the shoes of our governmental function, our prosecutorial function, and going after people who they don't like or want to shut up and silence. And this clearly is not legal, but the court, by refusing to take my appeal, essentially made it can you clarify on that piece? How is so they refuse to in the the legal parlance they refuse to grant cert. What yes. does how is that different from if they decided to take up the case and then ruled against you? It's a little bit different, although I would argue it has the same ultimate legal impact. But the way it works, first of all, our Supreme Court is is sort of like trying to figure out what happens in the Vatican. I mean, it's very secretive. And generally, for those who follow the court closely, what happens is, I mean, thousands of people file these cert petitions. You know, they want their appeal heard. It's completely discretionary. No one has a right to be heard by the U.S. Supreme Court. And every week during the term, the nine justices with nobody else present meet. There's no clerks. There's no assistants, no secretaries. They just meet the nine and they decide what cases to take and what cases to reject. They reject 99 out of 100 of these cert petitions. I mean, it's very hard to get on their on their dance card, so to speak. I mean, they mm -hmm. don't do a lot of work. I mean, you know, the Supreme Court of Brazil might hear 100,000 cases a year. Our court hears maybe 50, 60 cases at best. Hmm. And they're very selective, and it's very political what cases they decide to take. I mean, they'll 
they'll grab a case that's not even that important, particularly now when it's become so political, just to make a political point and make a policy point, as we've seen over, repeatedly over the last two years. So it's hard to get them to take cases. Now, in my case, because what happened was so egregious, and also because it really raised a critically important technical issue under our constitution, which is it's a separation of powers issue, which is which branch of government prosecutes crime. And, um, you know, under our constitution, it's the executive branch that prosecutes crime. The judicial branch presides over the cases. And what Judge Kaplan, who orchestrated this whole thing and who does not like me, what he did is he basically took over the prosecutorial function out of the judicial branch, which violates separation of powers. Now, to answer your question, if they had taken up the case and ruled against me, that would have been much worse than just refusing to take the case and letting a lower court decision stand. I actually don't believe, frankly, any of the, any of the nine justices agree with what happened. That's just my gut feeling because it's so crazy. But because they didn't take the case for whatever reason, and I think it was political, I think they didn't want to, I think I have a gut feeling they didn't want to help the people of Ecuador and, and Stephen Donziger, who had been so excoriated by, you know, the lower court in New York is like a criminal, which I'm not, but, you know, they, they, they were trying to criminalize me. I think they decided this wasn't the right vehicle to address this separation of powers issue. Although two of the justices, as you know, um, did think it was the right vehicle, Justice, Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. I mean, I, I disagree with these guys on pretty much just about every issue. Right. But, this, but they, they really came through with a very principled and, and I thought, you know, well-written dissent to the decision not to take the case. So, you know, it's not as bad as if they took it and rejected it. But I will say, had they taken it, they would not have they would have ruled in my favor. I mean, they're not going to go out of their way to take this case and not reverse what happened. So, so you know, how many yeah. how many are needed in order for the Supreme Court to hear the case? Is it five or is it nine? No, no, it's interesting. Great question. Four, you only need four justices to get cert granted. You need obviously need five to win the case. Right. Okay. So we had two, and you know, the other thing, Kyle, is very interesting. You know, talking about these weekly conferences where they meet and they they publicize what cases in advance they're going to talk about at these conferences. And there's dozens, if not 200 cases sometimes in these conferences, 300 cases. So I knew they were meeting about my case and then they kept relisting it. They relisted it four times, hmm. which is virtually unprecedented. So I was, you know, or, or my legal team, and I had some great lawyers helping me on this. I'm not a specialist in the Supreme Court. I've sort of become one a little bit just by watching this process. But we were speculating that there really was a, an intense debate going on in the court. And I thought there were three justices, this is what I was kind of thinking, that wanted it, and they were delaying it to try to get a fourth justice to join them so it, they could take it up. And, you know, obviously we ended up with two, but it surprises me that, um, you know, the other conservatives on the court, Alito, Coney Barrett, um, Clarence Thomas, um, and John Roberts, at least one or two of them didn't join Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. And it, and it also shocks me, frankly, that the three you know, so-called liberal justices, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Jackson, um, also didn't step up. I mean, if those three had just joined Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, the case would have been up and this, this private corporate prosecution would have been nullified. So it's disappointing. However, to be honest, I'm proud of us for taking it as far as we did, for forcing the issue into the court. I frankly never expect to get much out of the U.S. justice system, given the nature of the work that I do. Um, but we took it far and we forced them to confront this issue. And we got a great dissent, which I think, by the way, will have authoritative legal influence going forward if a judge tries to do this again. Can can you give people a taste of what the Kavanaugh-Gorsuch argument was? What perspective were they coming at it from? Because obviously when you think of those two people, you don't think of people who are environmentalists. You don't think of people who care at all about people of Ecuador. But perhaps from their perspective, they make more of a procedural or process argument about how this was a, an egregious overstep. Is that correct? Or can you break that down for people? That's, yeah, that's correct. But I'll, I'll try to break it down a little bit. Okay. It's kind of bizarre, right? Like I work 
28 years trying to help people who have been victimized by this terrible oil pollution in the Amazon. Many are dying. It's an environmental catastrophe. It's a humanitarian catastrophe, and it's ongoing. And I don't want us to forget that. There's indigenous peoples in the Amazon who have been victimized by Chevron. And the issue before the Supreme Court, the way it was framed, there was no mention of pollution. I mean, it was like, it was just like, it was just what happened as a result of my work to help people victimized by pollution. They wanted to hit me hard and they had me prosecuted and detained for almost three years by a Chevron lawyer. So, you know, that was the issue before the court, but it was framed as like a separation of powers issue. And people need to understand what this is, because if it happens again, we need, as as progressives, we need to recognize it and notice it. You know, because it's always hidden in technicality and legal esoterica, right? But what actually happen, happens in the United States is when, you know, someone is charged with a crime, it comes out of a prosecutor's office, okay? A judges cannot just go around and charge and prosecute crime. It's not the role of the judiciary, nor is it the role of the prosecutors, you know, conversely, to sit and preside as judges over the crimes that they charge. That's why we have separate branches of government under our constitution. And where shit, where the shit went off the rails in my case is when Judge Kaplan, after the U.S. attorney, the executive branch, refused to prosecute me on his contempt charges, he did it anyway. And he did it by appointing a private lawyer who was his friend. And it turns out the lawyer was also a Chevron lawyer, but even if she wasn't, this whole this whole construct he created to prosecute out of the judicial branch was unconstitutional. And that's what Gorsuch and Kavanaugh said, and they said it very, very clearly. I mean, Gorsuch said the Constitution does not tolerate what happened here. Yeah. You know, and and I appreciate that. You know, look, you know, whatever you want to say about Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, you know, and, and I do think they have their obviously have political agendas in the court. They do things that I believe are not right for this country and are, you know, wrong in many respects. On certain issues, they stand on principle. And I respect the fact they stood on principle in this case and tried to help, you know, help really uphold the rule of law. And in so doing, help me. I actually, um, I went to, I actually I went have... To law Go ahead. I'm sorry. I went to uh, law school with Neil Gorsuch, by the way. I never said oh, really? one word. That's fascinating. I never, said one word. I never huh. knew the guy. He was in the same class as Obama. Right? Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Talk about training. Heavy hitters. The next uh, generation of leaders. Uh, Gorsuch, I believe, is the one who penned the dissent. And I have it here just to read a little bit to uh, buttress what you're saying. He writes, however much the district court may have thought Mr. Donziger warn- warranted punishment, the prosecution in this case broke a basic constitutional promise essential to our liberty. In this country, Judges have no more power to initiate a prosecution of those who come before them than prosecutors have to sit in judgment of those they charge. Mm. In the name of the U.S., two different groups of prosecutors have asked us to turn a blind eye to this promise. Respectfully, I would not. With this court's failure to intervene today, I can only hope future courts weighing whether to appoint their own prosecutors will consider carefully Judge Menashe's, is that right, dissenting opinion in this case, the continuing vitality of Young and the limits of its reasoning. And then he concludes with... Our constitution does not tolerate what happened here. Um, do the uh, do they have to say anything? So, for example, do they have to pen this dissent? Um, number one, and then number two, those who voted in the other direction said, "No, we don't want to take up this case at all." Do they have to justify their reasoning whatsoever? No. So, ninety nine point nine percent of cases that are denied, and that's the vast majority of, of cert petitions, get denied. There's no writing; they just say cert denied. It's unusual, highly unusual for there to be a dissent, a written dissent, you know. So the fact that that Gorsuch took the time to write this shows how deeply that debate probably was going on behind closed doors. Um, so I'm I'm happy he wrote the dissent. Like it's to me, it's a major event. It's a step forward in our campaign that we now have two Supreme Court justices calling this out. And that, by the way, will have a positive impact going forward on district trial court judges who would even consider doing this. And I would hope it would have a positive impact on my particular case, because by the way, I'm still living in danger. There's nothing to prevent Judge Kaplan from doing this again to me, you know, holding me in criminal contempt again for something. So, 
you know, it, it, it's it's an important, they wrote the dissent. It's far better that they wrote the dissent than they're just be cert denied, like, you know, 99.9% of the other cases. The people who, you know, vote not to take a case generally don't ever write anything. Um, so we don't know what was really, we can speculate, but we don't know what was really said behind closed doors. I'm going to offer a theory, though, if you indulge me. Yeah, let's have it. Um, yeah, so... You know, there's a there's a real there's like a theory that's very popular in the Federalist Society called the Unitary Theory of the Executive, which is basically the idea that that these conservative thinkers about the law want to strengthen the power of the president, you know, over the legislature. Mm -hmm. And I think this I think my case got a little caught up in that that sort of philosophical dispute, because I think that. Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are very into that theory. And I think they saw what was happening to me as a clear example of judicial overreach into the executive branch, into a prerogative of the executive branch. And I'm thinking possibly that the liberals and maybe even Roberts and some of the others were like, didn't want this case to be used as a way to sort of strengthen that theory more broadly in the law. So I have a weird feeling that 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 um, Justices Kagan, Sotomayor and Jackson like sort of felt like the way Gorsuch was framing this um, would would sort of have a broader impact well beyond my case in a way they that they did not like. And, you know, you know, judges generally protect themselves. I mean, Gorsuch's dissent and Kavanaugh's dissent is is a way to say, hey, you know, all you judges out there in the federal system, you don't have this power to just prosecute someone for contempt mm. when the case is rejected by the U.S. attorney. You don't have that power. And a lot of the other judges, like, well, you know, they're like, they're not really bothered by it. You know, they're judges. They they actually want the judicial branch to have more power at the expense of the executive branch. So my case got caught up in that philosophical dispute. Just to, to dig into that for for a minute, um, just to to clarify, I mean, the, the my understanding is the the unitary executive like that theory is fairly radical. Then in the direction of like this was something Bill Barr was in favor of, like well, the president could basically yeah, Bush do. And Bush and Cheney and were Cheney. big on that, right? So it's almost like what you're arguing here is that. Gorsuch and Kavanaugh were right on this issue, but for potentially some of the wrong reasons, which is what made yeah. the liberals squeamish about taking this up. I think that's right. And I, you know, look, I'm not into the unitary theory of the executive personally, and I don't even know that much about it, to be frank. I mean, I've been down in the jungles of Ecuador trying to win a legal case all these years. Like, I haven't really thought or read much about that theory, but I, I'm familiar with it. And I think that that, I think what, what Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh were doing here sort of was to some degree about that. I mean, I sort of see it as they looked at what happened to me. And if you look at the dissent, the way it was written, it was very clear that Justice Gorsuch was really bothered, you know, like like the way he described what happened, you know, that I went down and helped the people of Ecuador win a multi-billion dollar, you know, tort judgment against Chevron in the in the venue where they wanted the trial held. And they weren't happy about it. So they they came back and sued me in the United States. Meantime, the case gets affirmed on appeal in Ecuador. They refuse to pay and they figure out this clever maneuver to actually prosecute me directly and lock me up. So I can't travel outside of the United States and organize international enforcement actions that would put them at financial risk. I mean, that's really is why I think this happened. Mm. So, you know, Gorsuch saw that, you know, Chevron was the, party in our case that wanted the case in Ecuador as we originally sued in the United States. Um, and it's just, it's so hypocritical. It's so, you know, it's so, uh, you know, it's just so tawdry. Right. Um, and, you know, I think he was on to them. Um, and I think he treated me with respect in the way he wrote about it. And uh, I appreciate that because it's, it's very hard for me to get treated with respect um, in the U.S. judicial by these judges, you know, and you know, I, I get a lot of respect in the world. I mean, in the court of public opinion or just among people in my profession and people in the world of environmental activism and the climate justice world and independent journalists like yourselves, you know, and I appreciate that. I don't feel disrespected. 
but it has been very hard given how political this has gotten in our courts for judges to treat me as anything other than what Judge Kaplan claims that I am, which is a racketeer. Mm. So to to read this dissent for me, it kind of landed in, in my soul in a way that 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 made me made me feel good, you know. And and you know, not that that's that important. I mean, I'm, I'm happy it did, but you know, the more important thing is, I think they stood on principle. I think they were offended by the idea of this crazy judge-driven private corporate prosecution, and. You know, they, they figured out why it was wrong under the Constitution. And, you know, back to one of, I think, Kyle's earlier question, just because they didn't take my appeal doesn't mean that they've sanctioned this wholeheartedly as legal. I mean, technically, it is now legal, like like it happened again. And, and um, you know, a judge could cite the precedent of what happened to me and basically say the Supreme Court refused to take the appeal. So it's law and they're right. It is law. However, the way it went down with this dissent, I think it's going to be a little bit more difficult for a judge to actually do this now than had this dissent not have been rather than, you know, if the dissent had not been written. Right. It would, it would be easier to do it. But the next time this happens to say someone in Atlanta who's now protesting Cop City or something you know, they're going to say, no, no, you can't do this. And we've laid out the whole theory of why it's wrong. You know, they have the dissent and they have Menashe's dissent at the second circuit level. He wrote a 19-page brilliant dissent, which I also think motivated Gorsuch and Kavanaugh to sort of, you know, to sort of write their dissent. So you have a lot of conservative judges now um, who I think are on to this. And frankly, I think a lot of liberal just judges um are onto this too, even though for various reasons, they didn't want to take my case. Interesting. Yeah. Your theory on unitary executive power makes sense specifically because it explains the liberal backlash. It kind of would turn it into a partisan type issue. Mm -hmm. Um, So that definitely makes sense. Another potential theory would just be, you know, their commitment to originalism, which is plain face reading of the constitution, because the case that popped in my mind, and we talked about this earlier is uh, like Antonin Scalia, who I disagree with on 99% of issues. He came out on the correct side of many free speech cases, including a a case on flag burning where he said, look, I don't have to like it. In fact, I, I can hate it. But the fact of the matter is this is definitely protected by the first amendment. So that's sort of what popped into my mind. Uh, do you think there's a, there's a chance that that was also, you know, uh, the approach of Gorsuch and Kavanaugh's that they view this as, hey, if I'm going to be an originalist, I have to, I have to take this stance. Yeah, I do. And you know, Scalia, as you correctly point out, was famous for, you know, sticking to his guns on a lot of these issues in a way that helped freedom in our country, free speech. Um, I mean, he did a lot of other things that, that you know people found offensive, including myself. But like, you know, there were. It's very interesting, isn't it? Like, I think the 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 liberal justices, and I think this is true for the Democratic Party writ large, and the, the, at least the mainstream part of it, it's very transactional, isn't it? They're like assessing, you know, how's this going to play in this context, in that context, and right. you know, is this going to give this, them an edge and a talking point yeah, here, exactly. or whatever? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Justice Sotomayor comes out of the Second Circuit, you know, and worked in the same, you know, court as Judge Kaplan, the person who worked, the judge in New York who orchestrated this whole thing. I mean, they're they're probably friends, you know, and I think there's all sorts of considerations that I think shouldn't be there that are part of how they analyze how to solve a problem. And I think others like Scalia in the cases you mentioned and Gorsuch in this case, Kavanaugh in this case, I think they're more people of principle, you know, they're like, they don't care what judge Kaplan thinks. Like, they're like, this isn't right. This is really not how the constitution was structured to function. We cannot let judges prosecute crime. We cannot let one judge be the prosecutor and the judge and the jury in the same case, which is essentially what happened in my case. Hmm. And by the way, no rule of law country would ever allow that. The idea of this type of thing, as far as I know, has it happened in any other country in the world that I've yeah. noticed? Well, you know, so it's bizarre, isn't it? Yeah. And I don't think it's in alignment with, inter- not, not only is it not in alignment with our constitution, in my opinion, 
and in Judge Gorsuch's opinion and Judge Justice Kavanaugh's opinion, I don't think it's in alignment with international law in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is that when you look at the record of all of these very conservative justices, I mean, the mm-hmm. overwhelming majority of the time, they're siding with corporate power. And this is an instance where they're just taking the total opposite position. Sorry, yeah, I, cut you off. I think that's right. Well, I wanted to move on, actually, to you gave me an opening there when you talked about the transactional Democratic Party, because um, Joe Biden, who feels he's, you know, doesn't have to worry about a challenger to his left in the Democratic primary, even though Marianne Williamson has obviously announced that she's running for, for president, I think is running a very strong campaign so far. But he feels he doesn't have to take her seriously. And he's executed what amounts to a very hard right turn in uh, recent months. It's been very clear in terms of his border policy. It was clear when he, you know, uh, over uh, sided with Republicans to override the the will of the people here in D.C. in terms of law that they, laws that they want to pass. Yeah. But nowhere has it been more clear than in the moves that he's been making on uh, environmental issues and on uh, fossil fuel extraction in particular. So um, this is a man who sold himself as like, you know, the climate president. A lot of people, young people in particular who are Bernie Sanders supporters were encouraged to vote for him because of actions he might take on climate change. The Inflation Reduction Act had some decent stuff in it. But since then, there has been a real hard turn uh, in terms of opening up new areas to drilling. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. I'm incredibly disappointed in, in President Biden. I mean, he, he campaigned as the climate president. Um, he said he would never allow more drilling on public lands. He's now in the recent days approved two massive oil drilling projects on public lands. He's completely gone back on his word. One in Alaska, the Willow Oil Project, and now one in the Gulf of Mexico where he just auctioned off um, an area of the Gulf the size of the country of Italy um, for oil and gas development at a time of complete climate crisis. It's just not only is it full of hypocrisy, not only does it go back on his campaign promises, it's awful for the planet. I mean, he, he's not the climate president. And more broadly, I think it points out how, I think how weak the Democratic Party is on in terms of standing up on this issue, which is an existential threat to all life on earth. And, you know, if we don't have, if the so-called alternative party, the, the, the left party, the liberal party doesn't lead on climate, then we're not going to get there. I mean, the Republicans you know, I mean, that's, they're utterly hopeless. I mean, they're basically owned by the oil industry and the the corporate class. I mean, so are the Democrats, in my opinion, too, but not to the same degree. And if we can't get them to get that party and our president to, you know, step up and take principled positions, um, we're not going to make it. I actually think it would, he would get more political support if he would do what I'm suggesting. Although obviously he and his advisors, I think, have calculated they wouldn't. I don't know what you guys think. I'd be curious to know. I think I think if he led strong and did it in a kind of a balanced, reasonable way, I actually think he'd get more support. I think he's miscalculating. What's interesting is that um, he made some very like sad comment on this. Did you see this, Crystal? He basically said, like, you know, I wasn't going to approve it, but then everybody on my staff told me to approve it. And so I ended up approving it. And that in so many ways, that sort of sums up the way he acts. I mean, every now and then you stumble across an issue where for whatever reason, he has an actual position. I think Afghanistan was one of those where he was like, no, I think we should really get out. And then when everybody was telling him, uh, don't do it, he was like, man, piss off. I'm going to do it. Um, But, you know, on certain issues where maybe his heart's not in it as much, he doesn't care as much, or perhaps donor money is coming from certain sectors. Then all of a sudden, you know, he goes in that direction. And the other thing is, uh, remember Ron Klain was replaced yeah. with Jeff Zients and, you know, Ron Klain for all of his flaws was significantly to the left of Jeff Zients, who's just a lobbyist ghoul, like right? A corporate scumbag. Yeah. And so when that's yeah. your main, your right hand man, right? If you think about it, like, uh, like game of Thrones, there's the hand of the King and there's the King and the yeah. hand of the King has a lot of, like that's, he's the hand of the King. And so it's just a lobbyist telling you what to do. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And to your question, Stephen, about the, the political impact, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I, I think that they also agreed with what you just said about the importance of climate in electorally, because that's why he made a bunch of like bogus promises previously that he went back on, but they get stuck back in this old nineties way of thinking of like, Oh, we got to punch the hippies if we're going to win a general (laughs) election where I just recently was looking at the polling on like green energy transition and climate. 
it is not just like hippy-dippy liberals who care about this stuff. West Virginia voters are a majority in favor of a green energy transition, you know, famously pro-coal West Virginia, and they're in favor of federal dollars being spent on this. This is a a top issue, uh, one of the top issues, not just for young voters, also actually for older voters who are concerned about what they're passing forward to future generations. And so I think they just lapse back into this like, oh, we got to be right wing on like crime and immigration and climate and show that we're, you know, not lefty radicals when they're actually they're they're completely demobilizing their own base. Right. How are young people going to feel about showing up to vote again for this guy this time around? And they're also losing the high ground on an issue that could be powerful for uh, a lot of Americans and, and, you know, Democrats and independents alike. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think they're complete. I don't think they get what's going on on the zeitgeist with kids. You know, I mean, I'm speaking all over the place. And you know, admittedly, this is anecdotal, but like I'm speaking to a lot of universities, law schools. You know, I just spoke at McGill in Montreal. I spoke at UT Austin. Um, I'm speaking next week to Louisiana State University Law School. I mean, this is all mostly on Zoom, but like the the the, the anxiety young people are feeling, I mean, is just incredible it's palpable it's so out there and i do agree i think they're stuck in like this old clintonian way of doing political calculations and you know if i were in biden's chair and like this willow project was on my desk and he's under pressure from you know the whole congressional delegation of alaska okay he's under pressure from the oil industry he's under pressure from his chief of staff And if my lawyers came and said, um, you know, if you don't approve this, they're going to sue you and it could cost the federal government $5 billion, which, by the way, is like a dime in terms of our overall budget, I would have said, I don't give a damn. Your lawyers figure out a way to win the case. Go fight it. Right. You know, go fight it. What are you? You're here to fight, man. We got to save the planet. But to just look at this and, you know, just because. They're telling him maybe there's a risk they would lose the case. Um, and then as a result, you approve the project. I mean, it's just, ew, it's just weak. Yeah, I, well, I, you know, yeah. Lena yeah. Khan at the FTC has taken a polar opposite approach to this, where they've taken on a lot of cases, you know, the, the antitrust part of the administration has taken this approach of, you know what, we are going to lose some of these cases, but some of them we're going to win. And so we're going to make you fight. Yeah. We're going to try to rework, you know, the understanding of what is actually a monopoly in this country, because, you know, for decades, it's been going in the other direction. And yeah, OK, we're going to lose some cases, but we're also going to push the ball forward in some significant ways. And I think that, you know, I've always thought that's the approach. I mean, things like, you know, using executive power to expand health care to you know, cancel student debt. And then if they want to fight you in court and be the ones responsible for pulling back those important benefits, let them do it. Let them do it. I I also wonder, and I'm curious what you guys think of this, the extent to which uh, on the oil and gas front, do you think Russia and Ukraine had some impact on that where the global oil and gas market was sort of maladjusted for a little bit? I know the U.S. lost about 7% of imports, but our European allies, for example, like, I mean, Germany was in dire straits there for a little bit. Do you think that had something to do with it where you felt like... Definitely. You think so? Definitely. Because I know they track gas prices very, very closely. And so, and they feel like, you know, where the the gas prices are is really determinative of their political fate. So I... So do you think he wouldn't have done it if there wasn't that going on, or do you think he still would have done I it? I don't know. What I know do you it's think, too hard. Even? We need a crystal yeah, ball for that, but we do have one. <laughs> I mean, given my theory that they're all so transactional, I think that had Ukraine not happened, had, had Putin not invaded Ukraine, I think it would be a different landscape. And I think it's possible he would not have approved these projects had that mm. not happened. But here's the but thing. Just because it happened doesn't mean he should approve the projects. Right. Right. And, yeah. and here's the thing that exposes like this. It's all sort of like political signaling bullshit is these projects are not going to change gas prices in right. the yeah. short term. It's like, all it going takes to a long Chevron's time. profits and Exxon's profits. No, I mean, it takes a long time for these things to come online anyway. They're, none of this is going to be operational by the next presidential election, let alone have any impact on like what is a global, globally set commodity price. They're just trying to insulate themselves against a potential Republican right. talking attack. point that they, they're or, the, co- the reason that gas prices are high. Yeah, they're thinking of what ad would be run 
to make them look weak on on developing oil in a way right. that would weaken our national security, and that 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 they're terrified of that, um, you know, because they still think back to all the crazy ads, you know, the, the swift boating of John Kerry, yeah, back to Dukakis and Willie Brown. I mean, there's such a history of these these this type of thing in our country. And I think that, that they're still terrified about it. And I, but I actually think they're, again, I think they're miscalculating yeah. because I think that, you know, with the internet, with independent people like yourselves and others out there, and I just think there's a lot more awareness, a lot better ways to get information. And I think they could inoculate them, not inoculate, but I think they could neutralize this kind of thing much more effectively today than Michael Dukakis was able to do or John Kerry was able to do many years ago. I I just think they're miscalculating. Stephen, there's one last issue I wanted to ask you about and get your expertise on. And this one does uh, relate to legal matters, which is you mentioned earlier um, Cop City, which is this, you know, expansive plans that they now are actualizing for this massive new police training center um, in Atlanta, in a, a forest in Atlanta, uh, including a, the reason it's called Cop City is like a mock city for them to practice their like G.I. Joe militarized type police tactics. There's been huge mm-hmm. local opposition. There's been a huge national and even international opposition um, to this project. And um, the, some of the activists have now been charged in connection with their protests and with some, I think, vandalism to like setting things on fire, those sorts of actions. They've been charged with domestic terrorism. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about this and what the significance for, um, you know, all potential protests may be here? The situation in Atlanta with Cop City is is very frightening for our country. Um, To charge mostly peaceful protesters with domestic terrorism um, to deny them bail, to me, is a complete uh, abuse of power by the local prosecutor, by the law enforcement agencies in Georgia. And I think people need to watch what's happening in Atlanta very closely. I think it's a bellwether because I really believe that if they're able to get away with this on a mass scale, there's 42 people now charged with domestic terrorism Jeez. in Atlanta are not terrorists. Okay, They have not committed one act of terrorism or even violence. And, you know, most of them have committed no crime based on the police reports that I've seen. Like the basis of the arrest is they have mud on their boots by meaning they're in the forest trying to protest the construction of this police training academy, which is a legitimate thing to do. It's, you know, at worst, it's a a misdemeanor trespassing crime. You know, it's civil disobedience. It's part of the history of this country. It's how this country was founded. So to sort of try to put the you know, the terrorism label on peaceful protest or peaceful acts of civil disobedience is an awful development. And people need to pay attention to this. And, you know, this sort of underscores another weakness in the Democratic Party, because like it really bothers me that the progressive Democratic senators of Georgia, John Ossoff and Reverend Raphael Warnock, have not spoken out about this. They haven't even asked any questions. Stacey Abrams, you know, who someone who I usually respect deeply, has not spoken out about this, has not asked any questions. And I don't know what's going on in Georgia. I, I mean, I think there's some combination of the power of the local police backed by these corporations like Home Depot, Coca-Cola, Delta Airlines, Wells Fargo, Norfolk Southern, the same rail company that had the derailment in Ohio. They're all giving massive amounts of money privately to the local police forces um, to build this police academy. And the nexus between the corporate money, the police and the prosecutors and the local political leadership that claims the mantle of Dr. King. I mean, these are mostly, you know, progressive civil rights oriented leaders um, who are backing one of the most repressive acts by policing I've seen in recent history in this country. It's astounding. And, you know, people need to support the courageous people in in the Atlanta area and from around the country who are really out there holding the line to prevent this police training academy from being um, from being built. And I want to mention one other thing in the course of these protests, as you know, there was one climate activist protester killed. He was shot 13 times by police and the autopsy showed he had his hands raised when he was shot. 
it appears that he was executed by a police firing squad. We're still waiting for the results of the so-called independent investigation by the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. And it just appears to me like they're, you know, crafting a cover-up. But we need we need real answers about what happened to Manuel Paez Tehran um, and how he was killed and who killed him. We still don't know the names of the officers. And there's something going on down in Atlanta that's really scary. And I'll make one final point. You know, what is Atlanta, Cop City protests in Atlanta, the Ohio train derailment and my corporate prosecution have in common, you know, in my opinion, what they have in common is just this increasing corporatization yeah. of governmental functions, be they police the judiciary or prosecute the prosecutorial apparatus. Yeah, that's a good and, point. You know, and, and, you know, people need to connect the dots here and understand that our country is seriously awry right now. There's corporations have way too much power. They pretty much, you know, had staged a buyout of most of our politics and our political system. And I'm talking about all three branches of government. And, you know, I'm older than you guys. You know, I've been sort of watching this stuff now for 40 years in my professional life. It's worse now than it's ever been. But on the good side, the movement is stronger than it's ever been. You know, the climate movement is stronger than it's ever been. The police reform movement is is as strong as it's ever been. And I think the one reason we're seeing the new levels of repression and these sophisticated tools being wielded against activists is precisely because we are stronger and we are more effective. And they're trying to intimidate the movement into sort of not taking the next step and, and, and growing even bigger. So this needs to be watched. Atlanta is a very serious situation. Yeah. Well, and encouragingly, I don't know that there's an uh, ordinary American out there that doesn't think that corporations have way too much power right. in American yeah. society at this point. So that's at least something to to build from. Stephen, it's always great talking to you. And um, I really appreciate you taking the time to help us connect the dots here. So thank you. Yeah. Love, love your work. And thank you again for having me. We'll definitely do this again, I hope. Absolutely. Our pleasure. Thanks, Stephen. Take care, guys. You too. All right, that was Steven Donziger. Um, when he was talking about Cop City at the end there, yeah. you know what thought came to mind? Bear mm-hmm. with me on this. I know it might sound weird, but okay. it actually makes perfect sense. And the longtime listeners of him will know. Like old school Alex Jones from back in the day would have been all over this. Really? And would have been on the side of the protesters. Really? Yeah, because he was his big thing back in the day was like anti-police state, anti-authoritarian. I mean, he was big time anti-George W. Bush, anti-the Iraq war. But like the overreach of police was a big thing of his. Well, and but now he nothing to say on it or of anything. He'd take the opposite position. Right. You know? I mean, yeah, it does expose, listen, whether you support Cop City, you oppose, like wherever you stand on criminal justice reform, whatever. When you see environmental activists being charged with domestic terrorism. And being it, murdered. Uh, and being murdered. Right. Now the cops say, oh, he shot first, whatever. They produce no evidence of that. And the autopsy seems to paint a different portrait. Yeah. Putting that aside on the domestic terror charges, I read through some of the police reports and what they what they were maximally accused of from the cops was so low level. I mean, some of them you really can't even classify it as any crime, maybe trespassing. But, you know, the most that they were accused of is like, you know, setting fire to some piece of like earth moving equipment, some sort of act of directly related civil disobedience. So, again, there are crimes you could potentially charge for that, property destruction, whatever, but domestic terrorism? So if you're on the right and you've been losing your mind about, like, the persecution of January 6th and the overreach (laughs) of the deep state and they're using this to justify a new, you know, domestic war on terror and all, and you got nothing to say about this one, it's like, come on, you got to apply the same consistent standards, obviously, across the board. And so the fact that they are completely silent about what is an outrageous overreach here is very telling. Yeah, well, because it's all political to them. Of course. And they think like, oh, I'm pro-cop. So, but then again, on January 6th, they weren't pro-cop. They were (laughs) pro-insurrectionist, you know what I mean? So there's no consistency. But anyway, um, the thing about his Supreme Court case was really interesting to me. We, I was shocked that it was Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. I wasn't that shocked by Gorsuch. Kavanaugh, I was. Because he's just like an annoying frat boy who I assume is wrong about absolutely everything. I think his explanation makes sense, though. That, that the um, unitary executive theory. And that the liberals were like, eh, we don't want to give him like a leg to stand on, on that thing. So let's just not take it up. Because 
I mean, not taking it up is different than ruling against it. And he says he thinks if they did take it up, that they would probably all have voted um, in his favor, which, you know, there's obviously no way to know. But I'm not excusing the liberal justice. Like, clearly they made the wrong decision. But that's the explanation that makes the most sense to me. Yeah, I mean, I guess. So you've got like the just total corporate shill conservatives on the court siding with the terrified liberals on the court to make the wrong call. And only, you know, two who have some sort of a like principled originalist take or whatever who decide they want to take it It up. It is kind of, it is, it was, it was just surprising to have Katanji Brown Jackson not on the right side, but have Kavanaugh on the right side. Like you're not going to find a single other case where that's the, the outcome. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So, yeah. But I was glad to hear from him. He at least found some comfort in the fact that there was such a strongly worded dissent and not just for him, you know, personally saying like, ah, thank God I'm not crazy. Like somebody sees it my way, but that also will have an impact potentially on other judges that were thinking of adopting this tactic when you can see that there are at least some members of the court that look really frown upon it and, you know, look poorly at it. That's at least something. Right. Yeah. Um, Well, hope you guys enjoyed it. And uh, remember, you could always support the show on Substack. Five bucks a month gets you the video of every interview and it gets it to you a day early. Everybody else could sign up on Substack for free and you get the audio version of the podcast and it drops a day later on Saturdays. And a massive thank you to everybody who supports this show because we don't take any corporate money, any advertiser money. So we love you guys and we'll talk to you next week. 